Do open up your Bible again if you've closed it to page 360, and let me pray as we start. Heavenly Father, thank you that you speak to us in your word. Thank you that you show us what you are like. Please, as we look at this passage this evening, would your Holy Spirit be working in us, helping us to know you better and see more clearly how to rightly live for you. Amen. Well, today is apparently the second largest day for U.S. food consumption of the year after Thanksgiving. Uh, the reason for that is that it's Super Bowl Sunday, the Super Bowl being the annual championship of the American National Football League. It's regularly the most watched television broadcast of the year in the U.S. It's the second most watched annual sporting event worldwide and is apparently considered by many Americans to be an unofficial American national holiday. It's a big competition that draws the attention of a nation. But as big a competition as that will be later on today, the competition in our passage is even bigger. The stakes are higher, the outcome more significant. It likewise draws the attention of a nation, but there was a lot more riding on the result than who would be national football champions at the end of the day. If you've been with us over the last couple of weeks, you'll know that we're in a series in 1 Kings looking at Elijah. His number one adversary was King Ahab, who we're told at the end of chapter 16, did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than did all the kings of Israel before him. Uh, Perhaps one of the primary things he did was along with his wife, Queen Jezebel, leading Israel to worship other gods, uh, particularly Baal. And this led to God, through his prophet Elijah, telling his people Israel that he was going to withdraw the blessing of rain. He said that it wasn't going to rain anymore. And by the beginning of chapter 18, it hasn't rained for three years. But God says to Elijah, go and present yourself to Ahab and I will send rain on the land. We saw last week Elijah and Ahab's confrontation with each other. Ahab referred to Elijah as you troubler of Israel. And Elijah came back more or less with that classic, I know you are, but what am I? And he then instructed Ahab to gather the whole nation of Israel with the 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of Asherah to meet him on top of Mount Carmel. Ahab agreed, and at the end of last week's passage, at the end of uh, the passage we heard Paul speaking about last week, we had a huge cliffhanger. We finished with verse 21, which reads like this, Elijah went before the people and said, how long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him, but if Baal is God, follow him. But the people said nothing. The people said nothing. They, they wouldn't commit to one God or the other. If this had been the Super Bowl, they would have wanted to dress half in the colors of one team and half in the colors of the other. But God won't have it. It's decision time. And in our passage today, God shows up in an unmistakable way, not once, but twice. And each time, his people, Israel, and we today, as we look on, see different things about him. Firstly, that Yahweh is the one true God. And secondly, that Yahweh is the gracious God. I'm really pleased that we sung a song earlier on in which we called God his, his Old Testament Hebrew name, Yahweh, because it makes me sound so much less pretentious for using it. But I just wanted to differentiate between him and other gods that might pop their heads up in this passage this evening. But first, God is the one true God. 
In response to Israel's less than satisfactory response, Elijah says, fine, let's sort this out once and for all. Set up two altars, uh, get two bulls, we'll cut them up and put them on the wood on the altar, but not set light to them. Then you, 450 prophets of Baal, call on Baal, and little old me, all by myself, will call on Yahweh. And, verse 22, the God who answers by fire, he is God. And uh, look at the people's response at the end of verse 24. What you say is good. Given their previous response, I don't think that they said this because they were particularly desperate to have an answer to this question of who was God. Not really sure. Maybe they just thought that this sounded like it was going to be an entertaining day out on top of Mount Carmel. So as Israel go and get the popcorn ready, the stage is set, and humanly speaking, it looks like Baal has it in the bag. It's a home game for Baal. Mount Carmel was also apparently known by the slightly more grandiose name of the Mountain of Baal of the Promontory. This mountain was Baal's turf. What's more, Baal's team is substantially bigger, 450 prophets of Baal, compared to one prophet of Yahweh. And to top it off, they've won the toss. They get to go first. Everything seems to be in Baal's favor. And to continue mixing my sporting metaphors, if we have Baal in the blue corner, then in the red corner, we have Yahweh, the God of Israel, playing an away game on, on, Baal, on Baal's patch with one prophet against Baal's 450 and going last. Humanly speaking, it looks like terrible odds. It looks like it would if the Super Bowl later today was actually between the New England Patriots, who are playing in the Super Bowl, and Little Johnny's under-10s football uh, team, half of whom are out with the chicken pox, at Gillette Stadium, which is the Patriots' home ground. Regardless of how unbalanced it looks, though, the show must go on, and so it does. The prophets of Baal are up first. Uh, they take the bull by the horns, as it were. They chop it up, and they put it on the wood on the altar. Then, verse 26, they call on the name of Baal from morning till noon. O Baal, answer us, they shouted. Can you imagine that? 450 prophets of Baal, all in unison, uh, shouting for Baal to respond. It must have been quite the spectacle on top of Mount Carmel that day. But despite 450 voices raised together in supplication, there is no response. They'd been at it uh, from morning until noon. And at that point, uh, Elijah looks up. Perhaps he'd been a bit distracted for a while. Perhaps he was scrolling through his newsfeed. But he starts paying attention again. And uh, he starts heckling from the sidelines. Have a look down at verse 27. At noon, Elijah began to taunt them. Shout louder, he said. Surely he is a god. Perhaps he is deep in thought or busy or traveling. Maybe he is sleeping and must be awakened. Baal was a god made up by humans. And so he was made in human likeness. So maybe he was asleep and needed waking up or deep in thought and his attention needed to be sought. Actually, in his, uh, in his suggestion that Baal might be busy, Elijah was actually probably suggesting that perhaps he'd nipped off to the loo and they needed to wait for him to come back. There's certainly some comedy going on here, but comedy very quickly turns into tragedy as the prophets redouble their efforts. They shout louder. They slash themselves with swords and spears. They prophesy frantically for hours. But for all their frenzy and bloodshed, we see the response they get at the end of verse 29. But there was no response. No one answered. No one paid attention. 
It couldn't be clearer, could it? The silence screams that for all the effort of the prophets of Baal, Baal could not respond because he did not exist. He did not answer by fire. He is not God. We might think that the display that the prophets of Baal put on is a little perverse, but aren't we at risk of going to pretty extraordinary lengths, thinking that the things that we've turned into gods, thinking that our idols will deliver as a result, thinking that money will deliver ultimate happiness, thinking that family will provide ultimate fulfillment, thinking that entertainment will provide ultimate rest and peace, we end up working uh, way too hard or putting unrealistic expectations on family members, or filling every spare moment we have with whatever kind of entertainment we've chosen. Or perhaps we do look to God, but we end up treating him in kind of the same way that Baal's prophets uh, prophets treated Baal. One commentator said this, Please note, however, the assumption on which the Baal prophets operate. God will begin to do things if only we get a flurry of passionate religious activity going. Do we not have our own evangelical Baalism? Christians and churches in the West seem to believe that God will surely work if only we spend longer in personal devotions and more time in private prayer, belong to a home Bible study group or form a peer accountability group, get more people involved in a visitation evangelism program, attend weekend marriage enrichment seminars or hold a singles retreat, start neighborhood clubs for kids or early morning men's prayer breakfasts or provide mother's mornings out, hold more mission conferences and increase faith promise giving or add a spring Bible conference, solicit someone to direct the fifth and sixth grade choir, become involved in a, in a parachute ministry on a local college campus and go on a mission trip to Jamaica or take the youth on a ski trip to Colorado, get a church bus ministry off the ground and spearhead the start of a Christian uh, school and be able to dim the lights in the sanctuary to create ambience while spending quality time with our spouse and families. All All this Christian busyness is as exhausting as Baal worship, even minus the gashes. Now, don't get me wrong, that rather exhausting sounding list of things is all great things to do. But If we're doing them to get God's attention or to twist his arm into doing what we want him to do, or as if there's a chance that he he won't notice us if we don't do all those things, we've got the wrong end of the stick. We see a better response as we continue on in the contest. The prophets of Baal have had their turn. They've been given more than enough time. They've gone to extraordinary lengths, but they've received no response. Baal had decidedly not answered by fire. We've reached half-time in the contest, and now Israel turned their attention to Yahweh. Elijah calls the people to him. He repairs the altar of the Lord. He cuts up his bull and arranges it on the wood, on the stones of the altar. And then, as if he's not already given himself a big enough handicap by choosing Baal's mountain and letting the prophets of Baal go first, he has the people fill four large jars with water and empty it over the altar, not once, but three times. The altar and the sacrifice are completely sodden. The water has filled the trench uh, that Elijah included as part of his new altar design. Elijah wanted to make it completely impossible that this thing would catch a light unless the one true God showed up and answered by fire. And having done all that, he asks him to. And verse 36, uh, we, we see his prayer. At the time of the sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed. 
O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, O Lord, answer me so these people will know that you, O Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. And far from no response, no one answering, no one paying attention, Yahweh responds immediately. No sooner had Elijah finished praying than the fire of the Lord fell on the altar and burned up not just the bull and the wood, but the stones of the altar and the soil and the water in the trench. This sopping wet altar is reduced to ash just like that. Even had they not been wet, the stones and the altar under normal circumstances would never have, would, uh, never have burnt up. But this is no normal fire. This is God answering by fire and proving that he is the one true God. Now, as Elijah was praying his prayer, maybe you were thinking, isn't this a bit of a risk? Uh, What happens if he doesn't respond? Isn't Elijah kind of trying to force God's hand? It seems a little bit as if Elijah is a magician and he's, he's trying to pull God out of a hat like a white rabbit. Obviously, if that were the case, that would be wrong. But I think we see in Elijah's prayer that that's not the case. Have a look back at it. Verse 36. O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Elijah had done all these things because God had commanded him to. When he prayed, he was praying that God would do what he said he would do. And that's a great model for us in prayer, I think. We might think, well, if it's God's will, won't he just get on with it himself? Why do we have to ask him to do it? Won't he just do it anyway? And it's true that God can and will do what he wants to do. But one of the ways in which he loves to do it is in response to us asking him for it. He delights to do his will in answer to the prayers of his people. And we actually do that really regularly. Every time we pray the Lord's Prayer, we say, your will be done. He's the one true God. His will will be done, but we ask him to do it anyway because it's such a wonderful thing to have happen. And that doesn't mean uh, that that we can never ask for something uh, without being 100% certain that that's God's will. But I think the, the more we get to know God and his ways, the more we'll be able to tell if something in, is his will and therefore a good thing for us to be praying for. Part of our vision statement this year at St. Mark's is that we would have transformed minds. And the reason for that is made clear in the verse that it comes from. In Romans chapter 12 and verse 2, it says, Do not be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world, but be conformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. The more we let God's spirit and his word transform our minds, the more we'll be able to, dis- to discern what his will is and, and not only live in accordance with his will, but pray that his will would be done as well. And that's what's going on in Elijah's prayer. God had revealed his will to Elijah, who was obedient to God despite the opposition, and then prayed that God would do what he had said he would do. And he answered in rather spectacular fashion. And it had the desired result as well. Far from the people's previous response of not saying a word, we see what their response is now in verse 39. When all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. 
Finally, Israel have climbed down off the fence. And make no mistake, the fence was a terrible place for them to be. In the Old Testament, God repeatedly describes idolatry in terms of a husband who who sleeps both with his wife and his mistress. It's not indifferent neutrality, it's adultery. God is the one true God, and he will not share his people with another. We see just how serious idolatry is, and just how wholeheartedly Israel had turned back to God in what follows. Verse 40 says, Then Elijah commanded them, seize the prophets of Baal, don't let anyone get away. They seized them, and Elijah had them brought down to the Kishon Valley and slaughtered there. Wow, what what a way to ruin uh, the end of a perfectly good day. Isn't this a massive overreaction? Couldn't couldn't Elijah just have said, hard luck, guys, Uh, you'd do better to serve Yahweh in the future? But no, if we don't understand this, then we don't understand how serious idolatry is. This is what God had commanded uh, should happen back in Deuteronomy. Speaking of any prophet who might lead Israel in worshipping another god, it says that prophet or dreamer must be put to death because he preached rebellion against the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. The risk of falling back into idolatry was just too great. They had to be ruthless with it. If you have a poisonous snake in your house, you don't just kind of keep, it, keep, keep in mind the fact that it's there and hope for the best. No, you, you have to remove it. It's too, too dangerous to let it stay there. And it was similar here. What does that mean for us, though? Well, I think Israel's response to this miracle is the main thing for us to be learning from in this passage. I suppose naturally we might want to put ourselves in Elijah's shoes, cast ourselves as the hero of the piece. And we've seen that we do have things to learn from the way that Elijah prays. But really, we're Israel in this story. We're God's people uh, tempted by idols. And we do well to remember that God is the one true God and to respond ourselves. We might think, well, if, if we got a, an extraordinary miracle like this, uh, that would make it a lot easier. Why doesn't God do that for us? And the thing is, uh, that actually he has. Not only has he had this uh, passage recorded for us, uh, so we can look back on it and, and see what happened that day, but he's also shown himself much more clearly since then. The sacrifice of the bull on Mount Carmel brought God's people back to him uh, in this one moment in history. But hundreds of years later, there was another sacrifice that took place, not on Mount Carmel, but on a hill to the south just outside of Jerusalem. And it wasn't a bull that was sacrificed, but God himself in the person of his son. Jesus' death didn't bring God's people back to him for just one moment in history, but once and for all. And as we gaze at the cross and remember Jesus' death in our place, shouldn't our response be, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Reflecting on the cross regularly will go a long way to helping transform our minds, uh, to help us see more clearly what God's will is and to pray for it. And if we recognize Jesus as the Lord of all areas of our lives, that will help us to be ruthless with idolatry, refusing to give anything the place in our lives that belongs only to him. What those idols are might look different um, for each of us. 
It might be money or success, or it might be comfort or entertainment. Despite how obvious Israel's idolatry was um, in in their Baal worship, they still actually needed someone else to come and point it out to them, uh, to help them to turn back to God. And it might be that we need the same. We might need to go to someone who knows us well, uh, a Christian friend or spouse or a prayer partner, and say, what is it in my life that I'm at risk of putting in the place that only Jesus should have? And what would it look like for me to be ruthless um, with with the risk of idolatry in that area? might be a case of working to uh, change our mindset towards it, or we might actually need to take action to remove it if we're going to be ruthless in that way, if we see the real risk of idolatry. It might be uh, that you're here today and actually you don't uh, believe that that God is uh, a God at all. Perhaps you're just exploring Christianity. And if that's you, I think it's worth remembering that the Bible's claim is that this story we're looking at this evening isn't just a story, but a historical event uh, that actually happened. And it's worth asking, if this really did happen, what does that mean? Of course, you might say, well, how can I trust that it really did happen and the Bible's telling the truth? And if that's you, I'd really encourage you to come back later in the term when we're going to have a great guest speaker on uh, the question, is the Bible reliable? So Yahweh has shown that he is the one true God. Uh, But I did promise you a second point. We've used up almost all our time on the first point, so we're going to do it very briefly. Uh, Yahweh has shown that he's the one true God, but we also see that Yahweh is the gracious God. And that is really, really good news. It's all well and good that Yahweh is the one true God, but imagine if the one true God of the universe was spiteful and fickle and merciless, That would be terrible. Imagine what an awful world uh, that would be to live in. But wonderfully, that is not the case. God has already shown his mercy to his people in the passage uh, by calling his people back to himself, by sending Elijah, by accepting the sacrifice of the bull, by showing himself uh, with fire. But his mercy doesn't stop there. Having proved himself by fire, he goes on to prove himself by water. It's not rained in three years due to Israel's disobedience, but back at the beginning of chapter 18, God had told Elijah that he was going to bring an end to the drought. Israel has now turned back to him, and the time has come. Elijah is sure of it because God had promised him that it would happen. He says to Ahab in verse 41, "'Go eat and drink, for there is the sound of a heavy rain.'" Or if you'd like, "'Go and finish your picnic because it's about to get really, really wet.'" And having commanded a king, he goes and humbles himself before God. He goes back up to the top of Mount Carmel, uh, bends down to the ground with his face between his knees. And now we're not told explicitly that he's praying, but he does take up this, this kind of attitude of humble prayer. So I think it's a safe bet that that's what he's doing. He prays, and then he sends his servant to bring him a weather report. And uh, the servant comes back and says, there's nothing but clear skies. And this happens seven times over before a small cloud appears, signaling uh, the heavy rain that is to come. But hold on a minute. Why does it take seven times? Does that not go against what we've just been hearing about prayer and, and praying for God's will to be done? Well, I think the answer is no, it doesn't. Praying that God would do his will is a great thing for us to do, uh, but God is not a genie. He won't always respond immediately. Sometimes he will, like he did with the fire, which is great. 
uh, but, but not always. We, we don't need to work ourselves into some kind of religious frenzy to get his attention, but Jesus does teach that we need to persevere in prayer. We're not told explicitly why it's seven times, but it might be because the number seven is often seen as a number associated with completion and perfection in the Bible. It might show us that God carries out his will in response to our prayers at just the right time, and we can trust him to do that as we pray to him. In any case, God does come good on his promise. He mercifully sends rain. Remember that he took it away because of Israel's unfaithfulness, and he wasn't under any obligation to give it back. Uh, He would have been justified in not doing so, but he graciously sends rain again. He is good to his people in all kinds of ways, in the big and impressive ways, uh, like sending fire from heaven to consume a bull on an altar, but also in the the seemingly uh, natural and mundane ways in in sending this rain. But even though one seems more obviously God-sent, they are both from him. They are both gracious gifts. And we do well to see his gracious goodness to us in everything that he does from us, from looking to the cross and remembering Jesus' death for us, all the way to saying grace and saying thank you to God for the food that he gives us. He is the one true God. It's right that we acknowledge him as such being ruthless with idols and acknowledge his extraordinary grace towards us in all that he does. Let's stand to pray. Heavenly Father, you are the one true God. Thank you that you do not leave us in ignorance of that truth, but that you reveal yourself to us. And yet, Lord, we all too easily uh, give good things that you've given us the place that you deserve. Uh, We worship things instead of worshiping you, and we are sorry for that. Please would you help us to, uh, to see our idols, help us to not be ignorant of, of them. Uh, show, show us the things that we are at risk of setting our hearts on instead of setting our hearts on you. Please, Lord, uh, would you be at work in our hearts, uh, turning our hearts back to you as you turned the hearts of your people back to you on Mount Carmel. Thank you that you are so gracious uh, towards us in all that you do. Help us to to see that, to acknowledge you for who you are and be thankful to you. In Jesus' name, amen.